Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk and thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. Today I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Lauren Cook, who is a clinical psychologist, speaker, and author. So Lauren, thank you so much for being here. Oh, Jessica, I'm so excited for our conversation today. I am too. But before we dive into that, do you mind introducing yourself a little bit about your background and what you do now? Yeah. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lauren Cook, but you can just call me Lauren. I'm a psychologist. I practice here in California. Got a new book coming out, Generation Anxiety, where we look at all the reasons why we're more anxious than ever and what we can actually do about it. And I don't know about you, Jess, but I really try and be honest about my own lived experience with anxiety. I think it's so important to be real about that. Uh, And I am navigating the new experience of being a new mom, too. I've got a little three-month-old in the other room. So lots of life changes happening over here and uh, just on the journey and enjoying it so far. Oh, absolutely. And I relate to so much of what you said. I am all about authenticity. And I don't know about you, and I actually can assume based on what I've read in your book already, because I, for the listeners, I got a little sneak peek, thanks to Lauren. Um, but we were always taught like, oh, blank slate, don't share personal things. And I don't know if it's just our generation and then Gen Z, like wants a more relatable therapist, but I think being authentic and open about experiences to a certain degree and, you know, with clinical mm-hmm. utility and things. Um, is extremely helpful. I think so too. I think part of the stigma maybe unintentionally is that the therapy door was shut so tight. You know, what happens Mm -hmm. in therapy? It was like this big mystery. And I think a lot of people felt like then, well, is it just me that's struggling with this? Am I weird because I'm struggling with this? And the reality is most clinicians were drawn to this field, you know, for some personal reason, (laughs) typically. Absolutely. Right. So absolutely. So yeah, obviously within reason, but I think it is helpful to to show up as real people too in our work. Oh, absolutely. I think I say this every single time I have a guest on this podcast that I don't know a single person that has gone into the mental health field that hasn't had their own personal experience with mental health. And even if it's not like their lived experience of having a mental health condition, somebody mm-hmm. close to them, like I don't know a single person, I don't know about you. That has just woken up one day and been like, I think I want to be a therapist for no reason other than that thought popped into my mind. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I think so many therapists, right? Many of us have this goal of like hopefully helping other people. Mm -hmm. But I do think sometimes there's this unconscious piece of it of like wanting to help ourselves too and like understand our story too. So yeah, I I think we're we're often drawn to this work for personal reasons. (laughs) Absolutely. So 
Lauren, you specialize in Gen Z and millennial mental health. So I have to ask, what got you interested in working with that age range or those generations, uh, I guess? I I have always loved working with college students, young adults. Uh, we were talking before we hit record. You know, I traveled as a national consultant for my sorority out of college, mm-hmm. and it was my first real job, you know, post-graduation. And I visited like 25 universities in one year all throughout the country. And so I got to meet a lot of college students and hear their their very personal struggles that they were experiencing. And I was seeing, and the research shows this too, is that college students, their mental health is really spiking in terms of prevalence, severity. And so I felt like, okay, this is clearly a population that needs support. And it's understandable the reasons why I write Mm -hmm. about this in the book. You know, when we're looking at what's happening in this country, everything from climate change to gun violence, uh, to the loneliness epidemic, there's Mm -hmm. so many reasons why young adults are feeling anxious. And so I really wanted to hopefully help give some tools that could help. I love that. And I love working with teens and young adults. So I can totally relate to that. I don't know. As I've gotten further along in the field, I'm realizing how much older I am than Gen Z, but I still like love that, you know, transitional age. Um, I feel it too. I know when I, when I hear Gen Z, some of their like taglines, you know, like queen and all of this. And I'm like, I feel like I'm too old to use those terms at this point. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there there's sometimes I'm like working with a teenager and I'm like I am the same age as your parent or mm-hmm. like like close to it. I'm like, yep. hmm, okay, not as cool as I thought I was. Yep, it's happened. The tide has turned. I know I feel it myself. <laughs> so you've mentioned your book and it's called Generation Anxiety. And it's actually coming out. I guess next week after this podcast actually drops, but can you tell us a little bit about the book, how, however much you feel comfortable and then what inspired you to really write it? Yeah, absolutely. So the book kind of has a few core tenets to it. One is really showing what is the latest evidence-based research for treating anxiety. And I really like to integrate this approach I call empowered acceptance. Uh, Some people listening might be familiar with ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, which I am a huge fan of. And I love incorporating CBT, dialectical behavior therapy as well, DBT. But really, it's about this idea of accepting that we have anxiety, which is very counterintuitive, right? Many of us, we feel anxious and we want it to go away. We want to make it stop. But it's often in doing that that we experience what I call mental treading, where we're just fighting ourselves. We're getting exhausted in the waters of our mind. And so it's really teaching folks about how to actually accept, you know what, I do feel anxious sometimes. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's not fun, but it's okay. I can learn to live with it. But it's also taking this empowered approach too. acceptance is not about apathy. It's not about being a passive bystander to your life. So it's really about, okay, this is happening to me. It's hard. I feel anxious. And how do I still take action in my life to start to turn the tide on this? Mm -hmm. I'm a bit of a behaviorist at heart. I really think it's important that we show ourselves behaviorally that we can face our fears Mm -hmm. because that's when the brain actually buys in of like, oh, Maybe you can handle this after all. I got to give you some credit here. And to answer your other part of the question, like why I was inspired to do this, 
I'm very honest about my own experience of anxiety. You know, in my particular case, I've struggled with what's called the metaphobia, which is a phobia of vomit. I don't know if you've treated it at all. Um, It's been amazing as I've been talking more about it with people. So many people have been coming out and saying like, I really struggle with this Mm -hmm. too. And, you know, for me, it was really getting in the way of some major life decisions. It was impacting whether or not I wanted to get pregnant and have a family Mm -hmm. because obviously morning sickness and all the things. So it was very interesting to be writing this book while I was, you know, actively facing my own fear and my own anxiety in real time and and having a baby along the way. So um, I I wanted to share that journey with people to show I'm in this with you too. And let me show you what works and and also what doesn't. Mm -hmm. I love so many of the things you said. First of all, you know, facing the anxiety head on, accepting that you have it. I always tell people that anxiety is a natural human emotion and it can become disordered depending on the extent and level and how it's impacting functioning. Um, And I think so much of at least what's out there um, is, you know, get rid of your anxiety or, you know, reduce your anxiety. And I love this idea of first, let's accept that we have it. Yeah. Um, and I know we're going to talk a lot more about it because that can be hard within itself, just uh-huh. that acceptance piece. And then I love that you talked about empowered acceptance. So it's not just saying like, yeah, I have anxiety. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I mean, that that's great too. And I, I don't want <laughs> listeners to think like that's not great as well, but then that empowerment piece and also integrating not only ACT and CBT, DBT, pulling from what mm-hmm. is shown to be helpful in reducing that anxiety, overcoming fears. And then sidebar on emetophobia, I I won't name the university, but I went and interviewed when I was applying to PhD programs at a program. And one of the researchers there studied emetophobia. And that was like the first time I had like heard of it, but like have ever met someone that was actually doing clinical research on it. Amazing. And I, was, I was like so interested, but also like so like you have to vomit or the client has to vomit. I was like, I have so many questions. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I know that. And the treatment around exposure and response prevention therapy mm-hmm. is so interesting, right? Because oh, absolutely. I share about my own ERP experience with that. And it definitely became a little traumatic. And I saw like when it's not done well, it's, it can be harmful. So we really have to be careful about those treatments for folks. I love ERP. I will tout Mm -hmm. it all day, but we really have to be, I think, trauma informed in our approach to it as well. Oh, absolutely. So a lot of what we're going to be chatting about today is context of your book and things like that. But before we even dive into that, I was just wondering if you can first just describe what anxiety is. I've read it in your book and I loved how you talked about anxiety. So I wanted to open the floor for you to describe what anxiety actually is. Yeah. Oh, I'll try and do that in a short snippet. (laughs) But essentially anxiety, it's the seeking of control, right? We want to feel grounded. We want Mm -hmm. to feel in control. And what's really hard is that the more we try and have control, ironically, the more out of control we often feel. Mm-hmm. And so much of anxiety, yes, it's about worrying, but one of the hallmarks of diagnosis of anxiety, right, is worrying that feels out of control. The DSM actually like says that phrase. 
So it really harkens back to control. And what we often see then is this kind of either avoidance or over-preparing loop that happens for folks, right? They want to pull back and run away. We start to have that script, I'm just not ready yet, or I need a little more time, or we almost over-prepare, right? And we overshoot. So it really can manifest different ways for folks. Um, But I'd say that avoidance piece tends to go hand in hand when we're seeking that control and we're feeling anxious in our lives. Mm -hmm. When I was reading your book and you talked about like the avoidance and like the over like prepared, I was like, oh, I'm definitely like the over prepared Ah. (laughs) type. But it was so interesting. And like, I mean, I've treated anxiety for years, but like, I loved how you kind of talked about those two camps, so to speak. And I mean, I'm sure people vacillate between Mm -hmm. the two, but like it is, if you conceptualize, we think of, you know, I'm going to use you as an example because you already shared like a metaphobia. So you're going to avoid situations that probably either enhance your likelihood of vomiting or being around other people vomiting, but for somebody else with a different type of anxiety, they may over-prepare and to try to gain that control, but both of those camps, oh, if I avoid, I'm gaining, quote unquote, gaining control because I'm not Mm -hmm. having to face it. Or if I ever prepare, I'm gaining control because I'm preparing for it, but you can't really always prepare. And logically, I know that, but I still do it. Any discomfort, right? Like so much of anxiety is wanting to avoid pain. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where we pull that DBT in, right? Those distress tolerance skills of learning like, we can get comfortable being uncomfortable. It's not Mm -hmm. fun, but but I think that's huge. And I I think it's especially important for Gen Z and millennials because we're so often engaging in these numbing behaviors. When we feel anxious, let me just pull out my phone and watch reels for two hours or go on TikTok. Mm -hmm. And then we don't get that corrective experience of seeing like, what happened when I sat with the anxiety? I survived, I got through it. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And so you just brought up millennials and Gen Z and our numbing behaviors, and you kind of already touched on this, but I really wanted to give us time to talk about it because in your book, you state that millennials and Gen Zs are two of the most anxious generations in history. And I mean, you have pretty much a whole chapter (laughs) on this, if not more in your book, but can you talk about why that is? What are some of the unique challenges that we as millennials are facing, Gen Z's facing that maybe other generations haven't. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a lot of people do ask me that. Well, why is it harder for these two generations when take, for example, the great generation, World War II, right? Like I was literally thinking that, yeah. Yeah, they went through some some things. And so, you know, I think there's a few things going on. One, I, I'd say the biggest thing is that Millennials and Gen Z lack community. Yes, they have social media, right? We have that, but we don't really know people on a deeper level. And I think that's something very different than take, for example, boomers, greatest generation. They knew their neighbors. They had way more community. You know, if you even look at a few months ago when, you know, kids are going to the wrong house and getting shot, like, yep. We are so, you know, not feeling safe in society. People are on edge with each other. And that creates a very, I'd say, unhealthy culture. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, we're also just inundated by things in the news constantly. It's in our face all the time. It's overwhelming. And unfortunately, 
I think millennials especially maybe sometimes feel a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. I do think Gen Z, this is where I get excited. You know, there's such a sense of activism within their generation. Absolutely. They see what's happening with gun violence and they're like, no, 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 (laughs) we're going to do something. I think millennials, we can get on board with that even more Mm -hmm. than maybe we have um, because we can't keep seeing these things happen. It's very scary for folks. 75% of young adults say they feel unsafe in the U.S. every single day, largely attributed to gun violence. So it it makes sense why we're seeing anxiety go through the roof for these two groups. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. So I love that you first highlighted the lack of community because I think and you can correct me if you have a different or I guess disagree with me if you have a different opinion. I think there's this false sense of we are more connected because we have social media. We have the internet. My husband and I were actually talking about this the other night as I was reading your book and talking to him about it. <laughs> and like, you know, we, you know, we used to go to school, even our generation, you would go to school, see your friends, go home. And mm-hmm. maybe play with the neighborhood kids. But like if you were bullied at school, it was left at school. Like you didn't know what kids were doing. You had to call on the phone, things like yes. that. So it was more effort. And now we're all attached to our phones. So like, I mean, I don't know if you can relate to this at all. I know things about people that I went to high school with that I literally have not talked to in yes. 15 years. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, oh, and their kids named this and they have this job. And so like we have this false sense of, being connected, but we don't have that community. Like you said, I completely agree with that. And we have a lot of connections, but they're very superficial. They're not Mm -hmm. deep. And I noticed that even in my own relationships where we're seeing everything, everybody's posting. So when we hang out, we're just talking about the latest shows because, well, I already know, you know, what you're doing, you know, with Mm -hmm. your work or whatever. And so we're not having these deep conversations. I think we're so starved, you know, on small talk and memes. And we leave these interactions feeling like, okay, that was nice. But like, it wasn't very deep or meaningful. And I I think a lot of us are missing out on that. Maybe that's just me as a therapist where we tend to probably go deep with people all the time. But I think that is an issue. I, I agree. And I see that with my clients. I'm sure you see that with yours. And then the second thing you really highlighted is just like being inundated with, you know, bad news basically. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I know there's like, I don't know if it's a meme or I've heard it a bunch on social media, like, you know, how many once in a lifetime events have millennials gone through, but it is true. Like mm-hmm. if, and I mean, Gen Z as well. And I completely agree with you that Gen Z is definitely more activism driven mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. we are. Like I, I always say that Gen Z is going to change the world. Um, mm-hmm. But even just sitting, working with Gen Z, that is like yeah. my only clientele, like election politics, things that I did not care about at mm-hmm. 14, 15 years old are discussions coming up yes. in the therapy room, which I think is speaks to both like, oh, they're interested in activism, but also like, these things are impacting our yeah. kids and teens yeah. so much. Yeah, um, there's as well. There's not the same kind of innocence, you know, but they've not been forced to grow up in a lot of ways. And one thing I found especially interesting, like with the generational power index, when you ask generations, what are these significant historical events that have happened for you? All but Gen Z will tell you 9 11 across mm-hmm. the board. Yeah. That 
was significant. But then you look at what's happened in the last like five, 10 years and Gen Z, it's like so many things like Mm -hmm. you just mentioned. So yeah, it's, it's very concerning these generations, what they're experiencing. And, and I think they don't feel hopeful for our future. In fact, I don't think that I know that the research is showing that. And Mm -hmm. That is an especially concerning statistic. Oh, absolutely. And I don't want to give a lot away that's in your book, but I know you really go into, you know, all of those significant events and gun violence and how that's all impacting. But it is like, I think of my childhood and I like to think I'm not old, (laughs) but like, I mean, you think 20 years ago compared to now, like it's a totally different world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Completely. Yeah. I, I think we're probably around the same age. I, I'll be open. I'm 32. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's a very different world that kids are growing up in. And I think about that now as a parent of like, what is the world my kiddos going to grow up in? Yeah. Yeah. I just turned 34 last week. So yes, we are about the we're close the, in age. Yes, exactly. But no, I think about, thank you. I think about that too, or even just like, and I know this is not the same thing at all, but like what kids pick up on, like my daughter knows how to like swipe on my mm-hmm. phone or like FaceTime because she was a pandemic baby. And so like mm-hmm. FaceTime and just, it's not the same thing as like all the big things we're talking about, but also like she's, these kids are raised with screen and access to information. And I try to limit like screen time and things like that, but it is just so different in like every aspect of life, which was the point I was trying to make with that. It is. It absolutely is. And I I think, you know, we have to think about that too, as parents of like, what do we want to model for our kiddos? Cause Mm -hmm. it's so easy for us to like, we have our own scrolls that we do. Right. And now there's little eyes that are watching that. So yeah, it's very different than how, when we were growing up. Absolutely. So now that we've just talked about the fact that we are all super anxious and we have all of these (laughs) big life things that are making us anxious, what would you say are the first steps that Gen Z and millennials can take in recognizing their anxiety, first of all, and then maybe even just starting to address it or accept it, I guess, if we're going off of what you talk about in your book? Mm-hmm. Well, I love to talk about this idea of the the four D's, and I can't take credit for this. This comes from a, a great professor, Dr. Henderson, that I had. May he rest in peace. You know, he talked about this difference in diagnosis because a lot of people ask, like, "Well, yes, I am stressed. I am worried. How do I know if that's like actually an anxiety disorder?" So, four D's. One, if you yourself are distressed by your symptoms, if you're like, "Ooh, I'm worried about how much I'm worrying." And two, if you're noticing a deviance from the norm, either for yourself, like this isn't usual for me, or if you're looking around at your peers and you're like, ooh, I'm noticing other people aren't having panic attacks every day. Like what's going on there that I'm noticing I'm experiencing that spike in symptoms. And the third is dysfunction. If we're not able to be effective at our jobs, if we are avoiding things in our life, if we are saying that script, I'm just not ready yet. You know, that's mm-hmm. something to really get curious about. And the fourth is is danger, which we need to normalize. If we're feeling like we're unsafe, if we're getting to that place of like, oh, like, I just don't want to wake up. I don't want to deal with my life, which can very much happen where somebody can be anxious long enough that it leads to a depression mm-hmm. because we feel 
depressed? Like, is this anxiety ever going to go away? Those are all cues of like, hey, might be a really good time to get some support. Um, And I am a huge advocate of holistic healing. Like, I obviously I love therapy. You and I are both Mm -hmm. psychologists and I'm all for medication as well. But I really do think we have to take a holistic look at treatment and even something as important as getting blood work done. I think that's mm-hmm. something that a lot of people miss in the equation. So so I'll stop there. We could go on and on about all these different things, but I think that's a good entry point. No, I, I love that um, and love that your professor passed that knowledge onto you because that is like a good way to kind of conceptualize because I think a lot of times, and you can tell me if you've heard similar experiences or different, people are like, they know something maybe off, but Mm -hmm. their understanding of what anxiety is or whatever it is, what depression is, is more that like severe clinical. So they're like, Mm -hmm. well, I am not like that. Or, you know, or maybe they don't even recognize that what they're experiencing is anxiety. They're like, I, I, I feel something's off or I don't feel like me, but mm-hmm. I really don't know what it is. So I'm just going to keep pushing through or avoiding. And they don't really recognize it's avoidance because right. the words are exactly. it. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why I think it's so important for people to know what their values are because mm-hmm. it's so easy for anxiety to dictate decisions in your life and not even know what's happening. You know, yeah. when we are ruled by fear, we can really hold ourselves back for a long time. And and then we can get to a place, you know, years down the line where we're like, Ooh, I'm noticing some regret that maybe I didn't do things in my life that I wanted to do. And so that's why I love helping clients get really clear. And this is in the book too, a whole value sorting exercise of like what matters most to you, because I really believe it's learning more how to live that meaningful life, even with the anxiety present Mm -hmm. than waiting for the anxiety to go away. Because I think many of us fall for that trap. Like I'll do it when the anxiety goes away and then we're, waiting forever. Oh, absolutely. And I love that you brought up values. I do a lot of values work, but, Mm. you know, just to kind of emphasize some of the things you said, if we are living in alignment with our values, we tend to feel better because we're doing things that are important to us. But Mm. I can think of so many situations where like, you know, say somebody really values work ethic job, but they have anxiety. So they don't go for the promotion or they don't go for like a dream job and things like that. And when you said you can look back on your life and, you know, Mm -hmm. oh, maybe I should have made a different decision. Like, yeah, you might be quote unquote comfortable where you are, your anxiety, like there's stability and is your anxiety in the front seat or are your values in the front seat? Oh, I love, we're both talking the bus metaphor. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's so true. It's so true. And I think it's, it's so easy to let anxiety win, right? Because it's comfortable. Like it feels so good in the moment to Mm -hmm. say no. And I think that's actually why during the pandemic, a lot of folks with anxiety, their their anxiety actually went down in some places. You, You saw this too? I saw that too. I'm so glad you said that because like, sometimes I feel like, I'm the only one that saw that, but for my kids with social anxiety, so many of them stopped therapy Yeah, because they were like, I'm out of school. This is great. Mm -hmm. I have nothing to be anxious about. Oh, I can take tests at home. Like, like, cause school wasn't like the academics wasn't the actual problem. It was the social situation. 
Um, so I'm glad you saw that too. I, I know I had a big reaction and I cut you off. But I was no, like, I, I feel I like I'm it. one of the only people that saw that. I think so too. Right. I mean, cause obviously health anxiety went through the roof for folks. Absolutely. But people with social anxiety and even like panic disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, a lot of folks, like it went down and then coming as we were starting Back to come out of it, that's when poof got all big again. Yep. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, no, to your point, like health anxiety spiked and we saw people that maybe previously didn't have anxiety, mm-hmm. experience anxiety, in other situations, but yeah, it did. Mm-hmm. go down. Cause yeah, it's comfortable. Oh, I can't go going back to the avoidance. It's now like, you don't have to choose not to go out. I can't it's quarantine. Yep. So it's the perfect excuse. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh. So mm. another thing, and I guess this is a big question that I really wanted to ask you about. Cause a lot of the things that you've identified as things contributing to Gen Z and millennial anxiety are really like I, national, worldwide, cultural, out of our control. Like it's just, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. all of those big things, like you mentioned 9-11, none of us can control that 9-11 happen, gun mm-hmm. violence, all those things we've already listed. So how can we as very anxious humans mm-hmm. cope with our anxiety if the things contributing to it are things like a pandemic or national crises because that just seems I don't know so big and overwhelming what do we do with that right and that's where that and this this I think makes people bristle at first because it's like wait what but I do really believe we have to accept that this is the world that we live in and and accept even the personal anxieties in our life we can't just put our head in the sand and say la 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 (laughs) I'm not gonna deal with this these things are happening and we have to take an honest look at it. Mm-hmm. It also, and this is, is more towards the end of the book when hopefully I've built rapport with the reader because this one always sits a little funky too. We have to get comfortable with the reality of death. You know, mm-hmm. in the United States, we're a pretty anti-death culture, I would say. You know, mm-hmm. we don't want to accept endings. We don't want to accept finality. And I think that's partly why we get really triggered when we have losses happen, which justifiably these losses should not be happening. But when we're not comfortable with the reality that life does include endings, then we don't feel like we can handle it when it does happen or if it could happen. And, you know, what I'm seeing in my practice is that so many more people are experiencing separation anxiety because Mm -hmm. they're so afraid. What if this is the last time I see you? And, that can have some some negative effects where we're not having tough conversations with people even sometimes because, well, what if we get in a fight and that's the last time I see you? Mm-hmm. So I really do think we have to take a, a very hard look at endings, not just beginnings. <laughs> we like yeah. a new beginning and a fresh start here in the States. But if we can actually see that with endings, we can cope and we can handle them as painful as they are, I think we'd see some anxiety go down too, because we'd see that we actually do have that resilience and those tools to be able to ride through those waves. I don't know if you see that in your practice at all. I'm curious, but um, those are some really tough conversations that can be pretty uncomfy. Oh yeah. I mean, so working in a hospital, I mean, we have to have conversations about endings and death Mm -hmm. and even just like, um, even if it's not death endings of, life as you 
knew it. Like if Mm -hmm. it's a new diagnosis of a chronic illness Mm -hmm. and that separation anxiety that you brought up, I, I see that a lot, both just because of the pandemic, like people were in quarantine in close proximity to people and then you go out in the world and it's mm-hmm. scary but also in um working in like medical psychology mm-hmm. just like teenagers mm-hmm. that don't want parents to leave bedside or parents that don't want to leave their teenagers mm-hmm. there because they don't know what's going to happen and even if it's not finality like death mm-hmm. but you mm-hmm. know cuz there's a lot of endings in in life. Mm -hmm. And I would agree with you. I think our culture is very like anti-death. That sounds weird to say, but like fearful of it, like don't want to talk about it. Hush, hush. But then that means we're not preparing for it. Um, Or we, you know, it happens, we mourn, grieve, and then like kind of just try to move on rather than process and cope. Mm -hmm. Yes. I just did a I had a really interesting conversation with a journalist the other day about that, about grief and how we're almost like making an appointment with our grief and like, Mm -hmm. okay, let me check the box on this so that I can move on. And, you know, that's, that's not healthy either. Right. Because I don't know if you see this, but then that grief, like it gets trapped in the body, like a ping pong ball, it becomes so somatic. And, and I love what you say about, then we're not preparing for it. I think it is this really scary foreign thing of like, I don't know what to expect with this because we don't talk about it enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I just, just trying to think and like conceptualize the acceptance piece of this is our reality. Cause that I imagine is just, I mean, not imagine, I know it is hard too. Um, But you know, through everything we've been talking about, if we don't accept it, then you can't really cope and work through it because mm-hmm. then we're just in denial and avoiding once again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and I love like taking a both and to it, like, mm-hmm. you know, with that, like it endings, like do suck, whether it's like yeah. a breakup, a divorce or whatever it may be, any kind of loss, a, a pet passing away. It sucks. Mm-hmm. Like we have to validate and acknowledge that for ourselves. And, you know, I do think not to get into like toxic positivity, yeah. I do think there is an element that it helps us be more grateful for our present day. If we mm-hmm. are able, and this is huge in Bhutan where they talk about death all the time, they are some of the most like grateful and happy people because they are keeping in mind like every day, every hour is precious. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to soak that time up that I have with you in this here and now. So I think it can be a both and. It definitely can. And you just saying that, and I'm going to like just share my thought process and hopefully it makes sense. You know, the sharing that in Bhutan, they talk about death. So every moment is like precious and they express gratitude and things like that. And then kind of thinking of our sociopolitical climate and I'm thinking mainly like school shootings or gun violence, things like that. Mm -hmm. And we're aware of those things, but instead of conceptualizing it as like, and I'm not saying we should conceptualized gun violence as a positive thing but like it's fear driven rather Mm -hmm. than saying like you know if something bad were to happen like I want to spend time and appreciate these moments rather than being like angry all the time and I'm not saying we can't be angry it's a both and we can be angry and like I hope that makes sense I don't know if I worded that 
well, but I think the way like we conceptualize those endings are very different, I guess is what I'm trying to say. No, I, I, I hear you in that. And, and I think it hopefully brings us more into like a here and now, because Mm -hmm. even with anxiety, it's so future focused. And I think even that gets like, I'll be happy when I get through this and Mm -hmm. I'll be happy once I accomplish this, that, and the other. And there's so much anxiety wrapped up in that, that we totally miss like the small, precious mundane, like Mondays. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's so much value in that. So I think it can help us like really bring into the here now and come back to our values conversation. Like you can put all that other crap aside because it's like, well, these are the things that matter most to me in my life. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. So let Mm -hmm. me really reprioritize like how I'm truly spending my time. You said that much more eloquently than I did because yes, that's what I was trying to conceptualize. Like I think we can look at the same outcome and if we're focusing on it with anxiety, we're so worried about the bad thing possibly happening that mm-hmm. we miss out on all the in-between where, for example, in Bhutan, because that's the example you gave, they know yeah. the bad thing at some point will happen. Yep. So instead of being forward focused with anxiety, they focus on the present moment. So thank you mm-hmm. for saying that. So then I could restate what I was trying to say earlier. <laughs> well, that these things are like so complicated and heady, right? Like I feel yeah. like- talk about it enough so and it's not like these things are not something like a quick tiktok or a meme can like express so oh, i know I we're like getting into it oh no absolutely so kind of talking about like forward thinking anxiety how do you envision gen z and millennial mental health in general but anxiety specifically changing or evolving in the coming years based on working with them, what the research says, just kind of the current state of our reality. Yeah. Oh, that's such a fun question. I love that. I do hope that, that we continue to have more of a holistic view in terms Mm -hmm. of our healing, because I don't know about you with your doctoral training, but quite frankly, in my experience, and I loved my grad school, there's really no conversation about somatic healing, body work, the gut brain connection. And I'm fascinated by what we're seeing with the gut brain access and the foods we even put into our bodies, how that impacts our experience of anxiety, or you look at the research on alcohol and inflammation Mm -hmm. and how that contributes to anxiety and depression. It's really interesting, not to tangent too much, but it's interesting how even in the, the health space, there's like this caveat for alcohol of like, you know, these wellness conferences that have a cocktail bar, for example, I I think we're probably going to start seeing, I'm hoping a shift in alcohol, especially as Mm -hmm. a coping technique, because especially we know with young adults, there's a lot of binge drinking that's happening. Mommy wine culture is a whole thing. There's an amazing book on this called quit like a woman that I love that talks about how culturally, you know, alcohol is considered a way to cope that is actually really hurting our experience of anxiety. And then in terms of a systemic collective change in anxiety, I really do think we have to be a part of the solution. If it's anything from, you know, voting to writing letters to lawmakers, to being a part of peaceful protests, we have to start speaking out on these things Mm -hmm. more. You know, even last night, I I got a call at 9 p.m. It said spam call. And I I answered it, quite frankly, being ready to be like, why are you calling me at nine at night? (laughs) 
But they were doing the survey about, uh, you know, as a person in the community, my opinion on the homelessness crisis here in Los Angeles and wow. what's being done about it. And I spent a half hour with this woman, you know, talking about, you know, different voting measures. Mm -hmm. And so even things we can do like that to be a part of the conversation, I think is really, really important that we don't just sit on the sidelines, but that we really actively take a stance here. And I think that's going to be huge for our young kids too, generation yeah. alpha as they're oh, yes. watching to see our response to this. Yeah, no, I love all of those things. And I, I, I love that there are more conversations about mental health. I also have seen a shift in like our generation of psychologists, therapists that can recognize like, okay, yes, we love our education and training and this is what we were taught. And these were all the things we weren't taught. So yeah. let's get, like you said, yeah, I learned nothing about somatic healing or like I have mm -hmm. talked to so many people that are like therapists and certified yoga instructors yes. and they ain't do yoga in session or, you know, mm -hmm. even just, I always say like going back to basics of just like moving your body. Like, yes. Talk about that in grad school. I mean, maybe for behavioral activation, it's like, yes, you can get them up and, <laughs> but like, mm -hmm. but even, yeah. Or yeah, you know, alcohol, food, like all of those types of things, engaging, you know, different even senses of, yes. you know, to like all of those things that you're not taught in a clinical mm -hmm. psychology PhD program. At least I wasn't. And most psychologists <laughs> I have talked to, um, <laughs> but then we're also having more conversations about it. Benefit and a harm, more information mm -hmm. out there on mm -hmm. things. Cause there's always misinformation. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. so I, I agree. I would love to see all of those things too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we will, I really do. You know, I think, the more that the field is client-centered and more cultural awareness, and I'm all for evidence-based treatments, but I really do believe sometimes the client knows best, you yeah. know, and, you know, people have been doing some practices for hundreds of years. And if it brings healing to the person, even if it's like a placebo effect, mm -hmm. but if that makes that person feel restored in some way, I think that's a win. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Lauren, I have loved our conversation. I know we could talk for hours because we <laughs> already had to cut off our pre-conversation before yeah. recording. Um, but as we start wrapping up, I wanted to ask if there's anything I haven't asked you about that you really wanted to touch on, talk about with regard to anxiety, coping, wow. your book, anything. <laughs> I've loved this conversation too. I'm I'm bummed you're in South Carolina because I feel like we could be friends. I'm well, oh, absolutely. We probably can't be friends. Yes, really. Um, but no, I just so appreciate the conversation. And one thing I really hope people take away, whether reading the book or or hearing this conversation, is that there is always hope with anxiety. Maybe mm -hmm. you can't make your anxiety totally go away. Like I hate to to burst that bubble. Yeah. But you can learn to live with the anxiety. You know, so much of the book is really incorporating this wave and ocean metaphor mm -hmm. as, as a way to kind of visualize how we cope with anxiety. And I really like to help folks embrace their inner otter. Like instead of mentally treading, like lay back in the water. Like it may be cold sometimes, but hey, this is the water we're in. Like you can still enjoy the ride sometimes. And don't let anxiety stop you from living the amazing life that you're meant to live. So mm -hmm. I'll leave it with that. 
I love that. I love that so much. And I love the otter analogy. I'm going to be thinking about that. Yeah. Tonight, Who so. doesn't love a, a cute otter, right? I know. Exactly. So the last question I love to ask all my guests is where can people connect with you? And also if people are listening to this in real time or after, when can people, where can people buy your book? I know it comes out September 19th. So if you're listening to this in re- real time, you have to wait like eight days, but um, <laughs> yeah. Where, where can they buy your book? Where can they connect uh, with you? All well, those and things. pre-order the book if you're listening in advance, because that always is great. You can buy the book wherever you like to buy books. So Amazon, okay. Barnes & Noble. Um, if there's an indie small bookshop that you love, we love that too. So wherever you like to buy your books, um, you can get all the information too on my website, drlaurencook.com. I speak with a lot of companies, teams, universities. So I'd love to either come in person or virtually with your team. Uh, I too host a podcast, The Boardroom Brain, where we talk about the psychology of success. And I love to read. So every month I pick a new book relating to psychology, personal development. And we almost always have the authors join, which is really fun. So be sure to sign up if you love to read and want to learn with us. Uh, and Follow along on Instagram on TikTok at Dr. Lauren Cook. I know we're both we're both there posting our psychology yeah. memes every now and then. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I'll make sure to link all of that in the show notes. Um, you do a lot. I mean, I know you do a lot just from, you know, pre-stalking before oh, our well, interview. So <laughs> but like, yeah, I mean, just everything plus being a new mom. So um that's awesome. And I have already told you, but I'm halfway through your book. I'm loving it so far. I'm loving our conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time, I guess this afternoon for you, this evening for me to record and have this conversation. It's been really insightful and I know the listeners are going to gain a lot from it. Oh, I loved it. Well, thank you for this time, Jessica. Stay in touch and uh, keep doing the amazing work you're doing. Well, thank you. And thank you, the listeners, for joining for today's episode of Psych Talk and I will catch you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.